0: Come unto me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. If you have your Bibles with you today, I would encourage you to open them to the book of Psalms. That's in the middle of most Bibles. I would encourage you to turn to page, or to chapter 46. 46. There's a Bible app event for this that has the plethora of Scripture we're going to be talking about today. I want to talk to you about what you see when you look in the mirror. When I come back and look in this mirror, I see one handsome guy there. Yeah. It always amazes my wife how she will look in the mirror and see every fault, and I'll just glance at it and say, Son of a gun, I look like I'm 18 again. It's just, I don't know what it is. All right. What do you see when you look in the mirror? Do you see someone who is overwhelmed or do you see someone who's overjoyed? Do you see someone who is overfull, or do you see someone who is overflowing? Do you see someone who is overtaxed or do you see someone who's just over it? Overtaxed. When I say that word, I'm not being political. I'm talking about someone who's being pushed, maybe beyond their abilities. I overtaxed a station wagon one time had to put a new roof on my uh, cottage at Mahaffey Camp, ordered the shingles down at Leser Lumber, and took my station wagon down and had the guy put them all in the back of the station wagon. Have you ever done something like that? Yeah. (laughs) I know that guy was looking at me like, you idiot, man. (laughs) And I hauled him the whole way to my home, which is like maybe five blocks, three blocks away from Leser Lumber, and then I hauled him to Mahaffey about three bundles at a time. Because I knew that was overtaxing the suspension on that that wagon. I didn't want to do that. Sometimes life does that to you. Sometimes life can overtax you. When you look in a mirror, you you say, that person looks really overburdened. That person looks really overloaded, overtaxed. And it can be in a spiritual way. And I want to talk to you today about spiritual realities of being overtaxed. I I used to feel uh, overtaxed about a lot of things. For example, I felt I had to be perfect as a Christian. And I had voices who spoke into my life, well-meaning voices often, who would recite passages of scripture where God says, be ye holy as I am holy. And wow, that's a, pretty high, that's a pretty high benchmark right there, isn't it? And so in my own strength, I kept trying to keep the rules that I had been taught in my own strength. But I want to tell you, I'm kind of over that now. It is not that I don't care about rules. It is not that I break rules intentionally on the left and on the right. It is just that I no longer see my Christian life as a burden <laughs> and I'm not overtaxed. I, I used to feel that way about parenting. Parenting is a very difficult thing to do at times. And when I would mess up in something, maybe I would lose my, my temper in front of my children or I would say something inappropriate to my wife and not be a good role model and or something like that. It just killed me on the inside. And I would berate myself. I can tell you the kind of words that I would say to myself through that. And then I would downshift. And I'd take off and I'd say, I am going to get this right if it kills me. And in my own strength, <laughs> I would try to be harder and harder, try harder and harder at being a good dad. But I'm over that. It is not that I don't try to be a good dad, but rather When it comes to overtaxing myself, I'm over it. It's that way with preaching as well. I used to feel like I had to write perfect sermons. And I know those of you that have been with me a couple decades are saying, I would have liked to have heard one of those. That would have been all right, you know? And I would just work and work and work to write the best sermons I could. And here's a phrase, you've heard it two times now, are you ready? In my own strength. I'm going to write the best sermon in my own strength strength. And when it didn't measure up, I would kick myself all the way down Linden Street, across Beach Street, to the end of Park Avenue, into my garage, and through the day, and through the evening, and on Monday, and on Tuesday. And maybe by Wednesday, I'd feel like I could look myself in the mirror about the job I did Sunday morning. I was taxing myself, working in my own strength but I'm over that. It's not that I don't try to write good sermons. I still try to write good sermons, but not in my own strength. I'm not overtaxed. I'm over it. I tell you that I'm over it because I've chosen to trust God in a different way than previously. And that's what I want you to choose today. To trust God in a different way, to trust in his strength. And actually, the Bible teaches us to do this in the passage you're open to. Psalm chapter 46, and we're going to read 11 verses here. Listen as I read it, and listen to what it's saying to your soul, to the deep spirit inside of you, to your spirit. God is our refuge and strength, and ever-present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth give way, and the mountains fall into the heart of the sea, though waters roar and foam, and the mountains quake with their surging. There's a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy place where the Most High dwells. God is within her. She will not fail. God will help her at the break of day. Nations are in uproar. Kingdoms fall. He lifts his voice and the earth melts. The Lord Almighty is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Come and see what the Lord has done. The desolations he's brought on the earth. He makes wars cease to the ends of the earth. Now, that verse 10 there, that's a pretty popular verse. It's a kind of verse that people put on their refrigerator. There are hymns and choruses and contemporary songs written about that. Be still and know that I am God. I want you to listen to how the New American Standard Bible translates that because it's a little different. And the New American Standard Bible isn't as popular as other versions because they really try to be a little more accurate and that makes them a little more difficult to read. But listen to what it says in verse 10. It doesn't say be still and know that I'm God. It says cease striving and know that I am God. I like that. Cease striving. It sounds like God is saying to us, just stop it. I've got this. And he does say that to us. And Advent is something that reminds us that he says this to us. His arrival here, his coming here, is something that he He does something that he did because he doesn't want us to be in a tizzy, to be in turmoil. Janet Billett got me a little Christmas decoration thing. It says, don't get your tinsel in a tizzy or something like that. A tangle, I can't remember what it says. I like that. God doesn't want us to be be just so filled with this sense of anxiety and to be, be overburdened and overtaxed. He wants us to cease striving and know that he is God. There are a number of different places where Jesus says why he came to Bethlehem and was born there, why God became a man. One of my favorites is in John chapter 10, where Jesus is speaking to a group of religious people and to his followers. And he says this, he says, the thief comes to steal and kill and destroy. I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. This is telling us that he's come so that our lives can be abundant and they can be rich. And the reason they're that way are because of him. Just five chapters later, Jesus is talking now to his best friends, to the 12 as he's gathered together with them. And and in chapter 15, verse 4, Jesus says these words. He says, abide in me. And I'm choosing the English Standard Version because I love the language of abide He says, abide in me and I in you, as a branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I'm the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. And then in verse 8, he continues and said, by this, my father is glorified that you bear much fruit. So you prove to be my disciples as the father has loved me. So I have loved you. Abide in my love. Now let's go back to the mirror. When you look into the mirror, do you see someone who's abiding in God's love? Or do you see someone who is striving? Do you see someone who is overtaxed or do you see someone who's over that? I've been a striver. (laughs) I've been spiritually overtaxed by my own doing. I have been overburdened. I don't want you to be that. Now, it's important for me to tell you this, and you have to hear this, or you might go the wrong place with the truth of this passage. What I'm talking to you about, I'm not talking to you about someone who is deeply involved in the work of God. In other words, this sermon is not to get you to cease serving. Every now and then, when you preach a sermon about letting go and letting God take care of things, there's someone who says, great, I'm not gonna have to do anything for God anymore. I'm done. This isn't about getting you to cease serving. It's getting you to cease striving and to abide. You know, Eugene Peterson passed away just this past year. He took the entire Bible and he paraphrased it. Peterson's translations are are really powerful because they put a perspective on it that folks that have been around church a while maybe don't see. Listen to how Eugene Peterson paraphrases the passage I read to you at the opening of our talk. Jesus is speaking. He says, are you tired? Isn't that what you'd love? I mean, who would not want that? And that is what God wants for us. That's what Jesus is talking about when he says, the thief comes only to steal and to kill and to destroy. I have come that they may have life and they may have it to the full. Let's talk a little bit about that thief. And I want to suggest to you that it is the thief that tells you you must strive. It is the thief that tells you your Christian life is burdensome. It is the thief that wants you to think that faith in Christ is a ball and chain. He wants you to be miserable in one sentence, Jesus tells us three things about the thief. The first one is, he says, the thief is a thief. (laughs) He steals. He takes away. He tells you, you must strive. The thief comes only to steal. Don't miss the word only there. That's the only purpose the enemy has in your life is to take from you. He doesn't ever give to you. It is not like you can follow the the temptation of the enemy and feel like you're going to get something good out of that and, and walk away feeling that was worth it. He comes only to steal. And the kinds of things he steals are your joy, your peace, your time, your hope. And listen to this. He steals your sense of God's favor. Do you understand that? He takes away just any sense of God's favor. And that's what the thief comes to do. He comes to steal. So you feel like you have to strive. More than that, Jesus says the thief comes to kill. The thief comes only to steal and to kill. And that is said of the devil. When when you read about Jesus speaking in John chapter 8, and he's talking to some religious leaders who are not, Godly at all, he says to them, You belong to your father, the devil. He was a murderer from the beginning. And now, here Jesus says in this passage in chapter 10, he says, The thief is a murderer. He kills dreams, he kills hopes, he kills. Now, when I hear that the thief is a murderer, it makes me want to fight. You know what I mean? I want to fight about that. Yeah, the thief is a murderer. I am ready. And I'm kind of like Johnny. In the Charlie Daniels song, Devil Went Down to Georgia, right? I'm ready to, to rossin up my bow, and I'm just going to give it to the devil. Here I am, baby. I am ready to fight him. But I want to say this to you. I want to say that if we strive in our own strength to fight the thief, we will not win. We will not win. I like Charlie Daniels, The Devil Went Down to Georgia, probably as much as much probably more than most of you here. It's a good piece of entertainment. It is bad theology. That's just the truth. Striving on your own will overtax you. And if you are fighting against the enemy in your own strength, you will look in the mirror and you will see someone who looks overtaxed, who looks miserable. I don't want you to be overtaxed. I want you to be over that. I want you to get over that. Jesus adds information about the thief. He said the thief is here also to destroy, to destroy. By the way, that word destroy that Jesus uses there is the same word that is used in Revelation 9 of a demon from the pit. Destroyer, on Apollyon. And demons are bent on destruction. The thief, he destroys. Jesus talked about how the enemy tries to destroy your life. You may listen to this message, you may read Jesus' words, and you may feel like when he says, the thief wants to steal and kill and destroy... Jesus, come on, I think you're kind of overstating it. I mean, you might not say these words out loud, but inside you might feel like, come on, Jesus, do you think demons are honestly really bent on stealing, killing, and destroying little old me? You really think that, Jesus? I think you're being a little dramatic if you ask me, Jesus. And if that's your perspective, you're very naive. You're very naive. Jesus is not exaggerating here. Let me give you a couple of examples from real life in the greater Clearfield area. As always, the names, locations, and everything else has been changed in order to protect myself from litigation. <laughs> okay. Here's the first example. I know of a farm that has been in the family for generations, and I can remember decades ago, the first time that I visited that farm, I was so impressed. It was what I would have referred to as camera ready. I mean, just bring your camera, because the farm is ready. It could have been in a magazine. It could have been on a calendar. It could have been, you know, on a, on a wall, on a big wall painting in, in a hospital or something. The farmhouse was beautiful. Have you seen those? It had a wrap around porch. It went, you know, almost the whole way around the entire farmhouse with glider on it and, and chairs on it and flowers planted on that porch. It was beautiful. And it just kind of seemed, from what I've been told, that every generation just made it more beautiful with every generation. And that barn, you know those big red barns, they kind of stand as a landmark? That's what you're looking at. Always getting the attention the barn deserved. The, the no sagging timbers, never needed painting because they painted it regularly. And when you looked at the fields, the fields were well-maintained. Even, even when they weren't farming, they were still cutting them so that brush and brambles didn't take over. It just looked nice. But now, not so much. I was there recently and I looked at it and it's run down, falling down. What happened? The thief happened. He killed, he stole, he killed, he destroyed. Do you know what his tools were? What tools did the thief use on his farm? Opioids, meth, alcohol. And that which was good was stolen. And that which was living was killed. And that which was valuable was destroyed. Jesus isn't exaggerating when he talks about the thief let me give you a second example again the names and details are changed to protect myself from litigation but it's a true story a young couple grows up going to church they go to bible believing churches and they love jesus with all their heart and when they get out of out of high school and they get into the 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 working world they both find very good jobs and they find one another and they fall in love they're a lovely couple and they have a lovely home and they participate in their church regularly and they have a couple kids and those kids are just almost cute enough to come to Carbonsville of alliance they're so cute right and they buy a home and it's picture perfect and then something happens and honestly it could be any number of things because i'm thinking of more than one family it might have been a restless spirit it could have been laziness it might have been a wandering eye but whatever it is it bears the mark of a thief and a thief has come and stolen what they had he killed something inside each one of them and he has destroyed that family and that home. Jesus is not exaggerating when he talks about the thief. Now, when things like this happen, the thief wants to move you into panic mode. When you kind of sense as a sheep that there's a thief around, and you see things are beginning to be at risk, and and there might be a problem here, you kind of get into a mode where I need to strive, and I need to do something. Now, let me say this very clearly you do need to stand firm. And you had better gird up your loins, whatever that means. You had better prepare for battle and you'd better guard your mind and take evil thoughts captive and make them obedient to Christ. Those are good things to do. They're essential things to do. But listen to this. The battle belongs to the Lord. It belongs to him. I mean, think about it. If you're a sheep... And somehow or other, you sense that the thief is coming to steal, to kill, and to destroy. What should you do? What are you going to do? You're going to, like, as a little sheep, when the thief is there, are you going to get up on your hind legs and go, Is that what you're going to do? Really? Is that what you're going to do? You might. I don't know that that would be healthy. You would be much wiser if you, as a sheep, when you saw the thief approaching, would run to the shepherd. That would be the wise thing to do. And that's why the good shepherd tells you to abide in him. We read it earlier in John 15, verse four, abide in me and I in you as a branch cannot bear fruit unless it abides in a vine. You, neither can you unless you abide in me. I'm the vine, Jesus says. You're the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. Striving makes no sense at all. Abiding makes all the sense in the world. I mean, think about what has been stolen. The thief steals your joy. Can you get that back by telling yourself a joke? I don't think so. The thief steals your peace. Can you get that back by saying, I am going to get peace if it kills me? I don't think so. I don't think striving is going to do it for you. In fact, only God can really restore that which Satan has taken. Real peace, real joy, real love. Those are gifts of God. And Satan can steal them But God can restore them. Only God can restore them. We can't recover them by striving. If we insist on doing so, we will overtax ourselves. Really, the key word in restoring what the thief has stolen is abide. Turn your heart toward God's heart and find in Christ what Satan has stolen from you. Move from being overtaxed to being over it. Only God can restore what Satan has taken. Only God can restore life. The thief comes to steal and he comes to kill. God comes to give life. Jesus says it. I have come that they may have life and that they might have it to the full. And if there were no advent, then there would be no fullness of life. And you would be stuck striving for the rest of your days and you would never, never find freedom. Never recover that which the thief killed. But because of Advent, because of Jesus, that which the thief would kill in your life can be resurrected. In the book of Ezekiel, there's a passage where Ezekiel, who God refers to him as son of man. Son of man, he says to him. Ezekiel has this vision, he's in this place, he's in this valley, and in, in this valley, get a picture of a desert valley, you know, just turn on your favorite of the spaghetti westerns with Clint Eastwood and get that desert dry valley there with sand and stone and dead, dead wood laying in it. And in the middle of all that, there's dry bones, I mean, they're just dried up, they've been pecked clean by the vultures and other things. So Ezekiel is standing there and God asks him a question, he says, son of man, can these bones live? And by the way, Ezekiel has wisdom that is amazing because his answer is, Sovereign Lord, you alone know. (laughs) I like that, you know? Don't try that on a driver's test. But, you know, it works with God, right? Then you know what happened. You know what happened? I can tell you what happened. The toe bone connected to the foot bone. The foot bone connected to the ankle bone. The ankle bone connected to the shin bone. Now hear the word of the Lord. That's what happened. They did live again. Now... You know, that became a spiritual song. We taught it to kids through the years, but there's an intense lesson there. In verse 11 of that passage in Ezekiel 37, it says this, Then he said to me, Wow, this is powerful. This is so powerful. Then he said to me, Son of man, these bones are of the people of Israel. They say our bones are dried up. And our hope is gone. We are cut off. You know what it sounds like to me? Like they've been dealing with a thief. That's what it sounds like to me. Verse 12. God says, my people, I am going to open your graves and bring you up from them. I will bring you back to the land of Israel. I will put my spirit in you and you will live. I will settle you in your own land. I love that word settle. I will settle you in your own land. And then you will know that I, the Lord, have spoken and I have done it, declares the Lord. Who can restore life? God and God alone. No one else. That's why striving is so futile and so exhausting. And that's why we want to abide. If you want to move from being overtaxed to being over it, then turn your face into his heart. Turn your heart toward Christ and abide in him. Only God can restore what Satan has taken. Only God can give life where Satan takes life. And only God can undo destruction. Only God can make everything sad become untrue. Only he can do that. You know, the demon I mentioned earlier, his name is Destruction, um, or Destroyer rather, abaddon apollyon destroyer he's in revelation 9 i don't want to mess with him i don't have to god does because the guy in revelation 21 if you were going to give him a name it would be restorer so you have the destroyer in revelation 9 you have the restorer the lord jesus christ in revelation 21 saying in verse 5 behold i am making all things new I love that language, I'm making all things new. The movie, The Passion of the Christ, it has, Mary, it has Jesus saying a line to Mary that the scripture doesn't say he says, but I love the line. She's watching him as he's going to Calvary. And, and she is grief stricken, And he looks in her eye and sees her grief and says, behold, mother, I make all things new. Only God can do that. Only Jesus can do that. Give newness of life. Give resurrection from from death. Restore that which has been destroyed. The thief comes to steal and kill and destroy. Jesus says, I have come that they might have life and they might have it abundantly. Satan's a thief. Jesus is a good shepherd. Satan steals joy. Jesus gives joy. Satan takes life. Jesus gives life. Satan destroys. Jesus restores. Why would we think that striving could be something greater? than abiding. Why would we strive when we can abide? As you draw your heart near God's, you learn that good things happen when you abide. Jesus says that when we abide, in John 15, eight, he says three things happen. And I put that verse on the screen in the upper left-hand corner for you there. He says, by this, my father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove that you are my disciples. What a great verse to ponder. When you turn your heart toward Christ and abide in him, the first thing that happens is God is pleased and you know he is pleased. So you don't have to strive to make God happy. He's happy when you abide in Christ, listening to his spirit and walking as he would walk and working as he shows you how to work and casting your cares on him. Jesus says, by this, my father is glorified. And there's something intensely satisfying about pleasing God. Something fulfilling. It's like when when you feel in your spirit that God is pleased with you, when you feel that in your spirit, it's just like suddenly everything is right with the world. It's okay. Abiding in Christ means that when you look into the mirror, you don't see someone who is overtaxed. You're over that. And someone, what you see is someone that the Father is pleased with. On top of that, Jesus says that when you abide in him, your life is productive, and you see that it is. Again, right there in verse 8, it says, so that you bear much fruit. If you abide in me, you're going to bear fruit. Some might feel there's some kind of a danger, like in Psalm 40, verse 10, when the NSB says, cease striving and know that I am God. Oh, pastor, if we tell people to cease striving, I've literally had leaders tell me this, never in this church, but in other places, if we tell people to cease striving, who's going to teach Sunday school? Who's going to tithe? Who's going to serve in the nursery? Who's going to lead worship? If we tell them that they don't need to strive, who will visit the sick? Who's going to help the widows? Pastor, what's going to happen if we do this? Here's the answer. When you tell people, cease striving, and instead abide in Christ, do you know who does all that? They do, because they're bearing fruit. The only way to bear fruit is when you abide in Christ. It says it right in the text. When you abide in Christ, you abound, and you're not overtaxed as you do it. And you understand the truth of 2 Corinthians 9, eight, where it says, God is able to bless you abundantly so that in all things, at all times, having all you need, here's a phrase, you will abound at every good work. And when you strive, you don't do that. When you abide, you abound in everything. And you know who you are. You know your identity. The thief would steal your identity. He would tell you that God doesn't care for you. He would tell you that you're not a spiritually adopted person, but God has aborted you, that God doesn't want you, that you are not one of God's chosen. And those are lies from the pit of hell. God loves you deeply. Every one of you. The story of the shepherd who leaves the 99 sheep to get the one sheep is Jesus' way of intentionally communicating to you that you as an individual are essential in his way of thinking. Not just important. He'll leave everything to rescue you. You are his, and he loves you. By this is the Father glorified that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. You demonstrate when you abide in Christ that you belong to him. And it's a joy to belong to him. It's a joy to walk with him and talk to him and to hear that you are his own. The joy you share as you tarry there, the poet says, none other has ever known. Yeah, lots of others have ever known. Every person who has chosen to stop striving and begin abiding knows that joy. It's a beautiful joy. And when you turn your heart toward Jesus every day, you cease striving and you abide in him. Who do you see when you look in the mirror? Do you see someone who's overtaxed? I really don't want you to see a person in there who's striving, who's weary, who's heavy laden, who's overburdened. Wouldn't it be nice to be over that? Wouldn't it be great to cease striving and know that he is God? You can. It's a matter of turning all your heart into his heart and abiding in him. It's a spiritual exercise. It's a spiritual decision. It's a spiritual lifestyle and discipline to do every day. I'm gonna pray that that it would characterize you. So if you're comfortable doing so, would you please stand? So I wanna do something I didn't do in the first service. I'll hand this to you, Donna. That's all right, thank you. I want to do something I didn't do in a first service. I, I want to ask you privately, not publicly, because I don't want to ever embarrass you. But I want to ask you, if this resonates with you, if you're like, oh man, am I overtaxed, and my, my spiritual life has become a little bit, or maybe a lot, of a burden, and I think it's because the thief has done his dirty work. If that's you, then in a moment, not right now, in a moment, I'm going to ask you to put up your hand. And I'm going to pray for you that supernaturally you would be free of that. And that supernaturally you would know how to abide. Okay? Before I do that, I want to pray in general. And then when every head is bowed and every eye is closed, I'll let you put up your hand and I'll pray for you. But let's pray in general first. Father in heaven, in just a moment, we're going to make ourselves vulnerable before you. And we're going to say that that which is inside of us shouldn't be there, that there's a thief that has actually stolen our birthright in Christ. And we want it back. So as we do that, I ask you to supernaturally do what you need to do here in Christ's name. Now, as you keep your head bowed and your eyes closed, if this is for you, if you feel that you're overtaxed, and you want to be over it, and you want to abide in Christ, just slip your hand up before God, okay? I see lots of hands. Hold them up, okay? Don't put them down. Keep them up while I pray, okay? Let me pray for you. Father in heaven, we come to you in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. He is a name that is above every other name. We recognize, we recognize the phony thief who tries to exhibit power above the power of of your name, Jesus. We see him for who he is. He has taken from us. He has trying to kill. He has trying to destroy. We want to fight that in our own strength, but we don't have it. The battle belongs to you, Lord. So I would ask that you, and, in, and I'm asking this in your name, Jesus, that you would restore, that you would resurrect, that you would return that which the thief has stolen. If it's joy, bring it back to us. If it's a sense of God's pleasure, bring it back to us, Jesus. If it's a sense of just knowing that we're loved, bring it back to us. Whatever the thief would steal, kill, or destroy, we're looking for you, Jesus, to bring that back to us. And we would say, of whatever enemy might be troubling us, we would say, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, he must be gone and not return. we would fill ourselves with the spirit of gladness, the spirit of joy. We transition in this moment of prayer by the power of Christ from being overtaxed to being over that. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.